Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. The topic for discussion today is the six horsemen of global recession. On the agenda, we'll look at the six potential shocks for a global recession scenario. First, we'll explore global tightening, looking at the fiscal and monetary policy. Then we'll look at the European economy, specifically in regards to the war and energy. Next, we'll investigate the Chinese economy in relation to their property bust and COVID. Then we'll discuss the US economy and the Fed. The fifth horseman is the Spanish flu analogy. And then lastly, we'll talk about markets and their implications. My name's Sam Kerr, and I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. As always, we have Damien Klassen, the Chief Investment Officer at Nucleus Wealth. Damo, great to have you as always. Hi, Sam. Hey, gang. Good, thanks. Uh, We also have our Chief Strategist at Nucleus Wealth, David Llewellyn-Smith. Dave, hi. Thanks for joining us. How are you going? Great to be here. Thank you, Sam. Excellent. Thanks, gentlemen. Just a quick reminder before we get started, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to, to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. Alternatively, follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Our show is available on all the majors. And for those of you listening live, feel free to drop your questions in the YouTube live stream chat and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. So now we've got that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we'll get into it. Uh, so, Dano, I'll uh, hand it over to you to get us started. Yeah, sure. So, look, Dave's going to drive most of this, but I think the um, the key thing we wanted to, I guess, we're, what we're looking at is your markets have obviously uh, had a pretty good bounce off their off their lows, and uh, you know the, the question from here is, you know, is this is this that the you know the war's been incorporated and, and you know it, it shocked everyone at the start, but but now um, people are comfortable with what the risks are and and it's time to to go back to where we were. Or um, other other sort of darker clouds um, sort of hovering, and, and this is you know the, the, the bouncy pad is a bit of a chance if you haven't already sort of lightened up on equities to um, to, to to have another crack at uh, at lightening up. So yeah, so with that, um, yeah, we've sort of looked at six six major things, and um, we'll start with the uh, um, financial and, and monetary conditions. Uh, so we've obviously had uh, central banks um, starting to raise rates, in particular the US. Um, uh, raising rates and, and also uh, governments sort of globally pulling back, and um, and that sort of leads to this horseman number one. And, and I'll, I'll pass across to you, Dave, to, um, to jump in. Sure. So this tightening actually started last year in emerging markets, uh, who began uh, raising interest rates and cutting cutting fiscal spending in some cases as well. And uh, after the uh, the inflation that began in emerging markets last year flowed through to to the developed markets this year. Uh, you know, we've got our own central banks uh, scurrying to hike rates, of course, most particularly in the US, uh, leading in the US because inflation is strongest there. Uh, and some of the other jurisdictions have, have more time, but they, they may get some rate hike, rate hikes away as well. Uh, and then this is combining with, you know, a lot of uh, re- reduced fiscal spending, which uh, some of which is deliberate and some of it is just base effect as uh, stimulus rolls off. Uh, but it's a lot. It's uh, roughly $3 trillion of, of fiscal retrenchment over the next 12 months uh, globally. And so, you know, the two tailwinds that saved us from COVID, if you like, uh, you know, through through massive stimulus, both uh, 
both uh, interest rates and government spending are being wound back at a furious pace. Uh, and so the question is, you know, can the, uh, the global economy handle it? Uh, the first um, uh, couple of charts I've put up here uh, suggest that it will create problems uh, as we withdraw from this this kind of stimulus largesse. The first one is is a you know global financial condition conditions index from Goldman, and it incorporates all sorts of different things from from interest rates themselves to to various spreads to equity prices to all sorts of things. Uh, but if you have a look at the left hand chart, you'll see that the global version is about as tight as it's ever been. And so you will expect global growth to automatically um, slow down quite severely on the back of that. Uh, and we are starting to see that as we'll go through in the various economies. Now, on our, our right-hand chart there, we've got one that, that is both kind of uh, upside and downside, I guess, depending on your perspective. And that is that the US financial conditions index is still incredibly loose, which is perhaps one of the reasons why the post-war uh, kind of rebound in equities has been so strong because liquidity is still there, uh, but it has turned uh, sharply and is is tightening quickly as well. But the interesting thing about this, I guess, is global liquidity is so tight before the Fed has even tightened US conditions. Uh, and so, you know, as the Fed's going to keep going, then those global conditions could get very difficult indeed, especially for a kind of US dollar shortage, etc. Uh, so horseman number one is simply, you know, the kind of post-COVID wind back of, of uh, you know, what was something like $32 trillion worth of stimulus uh, to get us through. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, that alone is, is going to cause, you know, quite a bit of volatility in asset prices, I suggest. However, we actually have a range of other shocks going on, which are, I think potentially going to make it more difficult again. Uh, so we'll go through some of those major economies as well and look at their specifics because some of these these shocks are quite idiosyncratic. Uh, and so starting with Europe, um, everyone will be aware that we've you know had the Russian invasion of Ukraine that's resulted in you know very strong sanctions, uh, uh, especially on you know some commodity prices, not energy in particular, but the end result has still been reduced energy flows out of Russia, both gas and oil. Uh, we think that a lot of the, the oil will come back in time and some of the gas as well, uh, probably via China and India. But for the time being, you know, that's driven some of the energy prices really high, in particular gas into Europe, which is, you know, a feedstock for a lot of industry and warms an awful lot of households. Uh, you know, that, to, to give you some notion, you know, generally the Dutch TTF gas price is hovering around $10, dollars $12, uh, $20 tops. Uh, it's been as high as 230 recently. It's back down to about 120 at the moment. So it's a huge energy shock for Europe uh, that's already shutting down, you know, some gas-dependent industries. Uh, and it, the war itself as well has really hammered, uh, you know, both, both the supply and demand demand side of the households and business confidence has been absolutely trashed by it. And you can see that in two of the charts I've got up here. Uh, just consumer confidence in the EU is now as low as it was during COVID. Uh, and the German IFO, which is a pretty good leading indicator of the German economy, 
at least in terms of its manufacturing sectors, has also dropped very sharply, not quite as bad as COVID, but, uh, you know, as low as it was, in fact, lower than it was during the European debt crisis and, and certainly low enough to be concerning. Uh, so we're already seeing those impacts from the war. Uh, and I've added, uh, actually, I'll come back to that, to that one. Um, now, we do have some offsets to this in Europe uh, in due course, which is that it's trying to urgently, uh, you know, kind of uh, rejig its energy supply chains away from Russia. So it's looking at spending a lot of money to do that, you know, through various means and mechanisms for everything from uh, boosting renewable energy to, to uh, you know, transferring uh, its purchases of energy to to uh, those within its sphere of influence or to other allies like the US. Uh, however, this is going to take time, and we know that Brussels never moves quickly on anything. Uh, and so, I, you know, this is going to take. There's going to be a lag on this. Uh, well, and, and the other problem is obviously that uh, they just can't produce that the amount of you know solar panels and and wind turbines yeah. and things like that that you need to to, to transfer a significant amount. Exactly. So yes. So you need years of that building up. You will, yes, use that building up before, you know, and that's after we finally get some funding, which, which you know, we'll have to go through the various uh, laborious mechanisms of, of the Eurozone. Yeah, so... Is everyone, everyone, well, as all the manufacturers basically put all, all put their hands out for, for mm-hmm. yeah, whether it's going to be French manufacturers or German manufacturers or whatever it is, who all, yes. all want to be, you know, first in line for... Absolutely. For, 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 for some subsidies, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh so fiscal is going to lag. We think in Europe it'll take time before that boost comes through. And in the meantime, it its inflation yesterday was really red hot. Um, it's starting to really chase the US higher. Uh, and so the I don't think the ECB is about to sort of take off. It's got much higher unemployment than the US does. Uh, and so even though it has kind of stronger uh, underpinnings, shall I say institutional underpinnings to wages growth, than the US does, uh, you know. Yeah, unemployment is still okay in the in in the EZ. So I mean, the ECB doesn't have to rush, but you know, it is starting to think about tightening. So you know, there's there's shocks hitting Europe, supply and demand, and the ECB is thinking about tightening, and the fiscal is going to take time. Uh, and so I think you know, Europe basically is is. Uh, in danger of a recession intrinsically uh, or endogenously before we even talk about the rest of the world. Uh, And this is where I get to the final chart on here, which was uh, just shows um, the recent, most recent European PMIs, which were very quite strong at the headline level. Uh, But for those who could, who know how to look under the bonnet, we're actually very weak uh, because, uh, you know, and especially in the leading indicators like new orders and new export orders, if you can look at the chart there, you can see they've suddenly crashed to zero growth. Uh, and and so, you know, it's endogenously weak and in, and in danger of recession, and it's about to, to like, take a external hit as well, um, which is a good jumping-off point um, to China because, the you know, the forces are different there, but the overall scenario is actually very similar. And they're not dissimilar economies either. They're both kind of mercantilist, uh, export-driven economies. So 
in China's case, and, and I guess I guess just to put that in perspective, what David means by that is, um, you know, typically US and 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 uh, UK, Australia, Canada are all basically net importers of a lot of goods and, and are out there. They're sort of providing the demand, whereas a lot of Europe and and China is is providing the supply. Yes. And so and and arguably, you know, that that's because uh, wages are, are too low in both, you know, say Germany and and China. Yep. For, um relative to, to, to other countries. Yes. But um but yeah, and, that's a and currencies as well. Mm. Um so so yes, I mean the the overall shape of the problem confronting Europe is very similar in China, and that is it's got very weak domestic demand. In the in its case, however, it is the property bust that uh, is unprecedented. It's the largest property bust I've ever seen in China. Uh and, you know, we probably have to go back at least 20 years, probably 25 to, to the pre-millennial stuff to get anywhere near it. Uh, I've got a chart here from Goldman showing recent, uh, uh, this, this is construction of homes, by the way, new housing, uh, and largely apartments for that matter. Uh, it's down by half year on year. Uh, the official numbers haven't caught down to this slow yet. They've been hovering between 20 and 30% down. Uh, so there's some, you know, kind of debate over just how deep it is, but it's certainly deep enough either way. Uh, and as we know, property, you know, constitutes somewhere between a quarter and a third of the Chinese economy. And so this is a huge headwind for growth uh, in China. Now that, you know, a lot of people have been, sort of expecting a bailout for the sector, but it just isn't coming, and I don't think it's going to come. There certainly is looser policy, uh, <clears throat> and I expect more because, you know, they have no choice given this is going to really land on growth very hard. Uh, there's a lot of local area easing now on on, on um, macroprudential measures, and I expect the PBOC to ease a lot more as well, but I do not think that the that the driver of it is going to change unless there's a real kind of wipeout in the economy. And that's the three red lines policy that's there to to rationalise these um, amazingly uh, over-leveraged developers. Uh, and so while that is in place, uh, basically both the fiscal and monetary efforts to lift growth are kind of pushing on a string because you have this intense macroprudential headwind for all property developers and it creates you know real doubts in the entire property market so you end up with this kind of counterparty risk for buyers of property who are concerned they'll, they'll never get their property delivered uh, there's huge counterparty risk for the funding of the developers and they can't get money because it's all so expensive because they're so risky uh, and so that is just an ongoing adjustment that is you know managed and it's deliberate but at the same time it is probably deeper and um, more unruly than they wanted or hoped and it's certainly developed into a very serious economic headwind uh, so that's and it's worth sorry, saying yeah. as well yeah that that look the it, it's a very slow motion um event that's that's going on in terms of say evergrand is one of the, probably the you know, one of the, the poster child for, for the problems. Um, you know, there's plenty of other um, uh, developers in the same position as Evergrande or, or worse. But, you know, that's been going on for, what, two years now, possibly even three years. Uh, and it's it's sort of this, it's a, 
it's not quite a default, but it's it's clearly it's close. And and um, at every stage, it's sort of like a, a you know one one step further down, and then a lot of announcements about how um, things are going to be changed, you know, loosening um, or, or or small things that are being done to help developers. And then you know, and then two months later, you get another step down, and then the same thing, same you know, same factor again. And each time, I feel as if there's a um, you know, obviously, China's trying to manage the 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 optics of it, making sure they they don't or trying their best not to cause a, a massive property crash within it. But um, I think the the positives can be can be read far too optimistically, or have been read far too optimistically every time. Um, is that oh okay, we've just reached the bottom, you know, and then now yeah. everything's up from here, and then no, it's not, and then the next you know, two months later, same story, same story. All yeah. the way. All Look, the way I've on. forgotten how many times I've read it's the bottom in Chinese property over the last eighteen months. So, mm. exactly right. It's could it be the bottom now? Yeah, maybe, but it it doesn't look like they've solved the fundamental problems. Well, uh, I wouldn't put it that way. Uh, I mean, the adjustment just needs to run further if they want to take it seriously, and uh, the difficulty of county party risk that's that's kind of holding it all back just can't be resolved by cheaper money or anything else of that nature. So uh, I don't think it's about to rebound terribly strongly at all. So uh, that brings us to uh, our second shock that's now, you know, really uh, starting to hit Chinese growth, and that is Omicron, uh, which has, uh, you know, kind of skipped the, uh, well, um, you know, the, skipped the boundaries, as it were, that, that uh, containment and began in Hong Kong, uh, spread to Shenzhen and, and is now in Shanghai and they've all been forced to shut down uh, as it's whipped its way around the country. At the moment, the cases are still getting worse in Shanghai and they're just it's just about in every province in China now. Roughly a third of the provinces are all on like the high-risk, medium or high-risk category. So they've got some form of mobility constraint or shut all actual lockdowns underway. Uh, now I, 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 you know, it's in it's in the lap of the gods of whether the CCP with all of its controls can can tackle Omicron successfully. Uh, what is clear, I think, is that the effort to do so will need to be ongoing and be a non-stop headwind to growth. Even if they succeed, they can only succeed by hitting growth, is the point. So I've got a second chart there on the left, which shows, uh, you know, the degree of, of kind of lockdowns in China are now the highest they have been since March 2020 uh, and still basically still climbing. Um, and, uh, you know, they may not get higher than this, but they don't need to, is the point. They'll just be rolling, chasing Omicron around China for the next, well, forever as far as i can tell uh you know until they reach a point where they have no choice but to to sort of let it run but they're not there uh and probably for good reason they really have you know no their vaccines are lousy uh, and I've, I've read some you know pretty scary kind of uh estimates of, of the de death rate that they might get if if it does manage to get away uh they're elderly particularly are unvaccinated and so it's like you know some of them some of them analysed it like 40,000 deaths a day if it gets out. So this is why the CCP is determined to remain zero COVID, but it is going to start hitting hitting growth. Well, it is hitting growth already, and it's making the property bus worse as well. 
So and and G has made a fair point personally about the whole um you know China's there to save um China's citizens. It's you know it's got um zero COVID. You know unlike the sort of decadent West and you know yeah and, and it made a made a point about how badly a lot of other countries were doing you know you know over the last couple of years whereas whereas China's doing quite well and so um you know it's very hard to to flip that narrative um, yes, quickly it is so i don't i don't think they will i think they'll keep going uh, where that ends is an interesting question but not one we need to tackle today so uh so there are offsets to this. Um, they're trying to spend fiscally um, sensibly enough. There is monetary easing coming as well, but um, the main effort is fiscal so far. Uh, however, there are you know limits to that. Like lockdowns don't let you stimulate fiscally, particularly either. Like they would if they were demand based, like the US does, but China doesn't do it that way. They try to you know. To, to uh, spend on the supply side, and that's not going to work if you're locked down. Um, uh, uh, in addition to that, the property bust is is uh, having a very deleterious impact on the budgets of local governments because of the land sales that they generally get out of it, which is about a third or a forty percent of their revenue, and that's getting absolutely hammered. Uh, and so, despite you know, more money coming from federal authorities, the local governments are constrained. So, and there's lots of confused messaging coming out of Beijing about deleveraging versus, you know, supporting the economy. So, um, there, you know, there are the transmission of fiscal policy right now is also kind of pushing on a string a little, not as much as monetary, I don't think, uh, but, you know, both of them are, are, are constrained. So, uh, the one bright spot that's really you know, because all of this has kind of been in place now, certainly for most of last year, which is why Chinese growth slowed so much. Uh, and the one thing that was kind of sustaining the economy and supporting growth was exports. They had an absolutely extraordinary export boom in volume terms. Uh, and some of the investment that comes after that into new capacity is what's held the economy up over the last couple of quarters. And, and actually, just just to confirm as well that so that exports largely driven by um, uh, the US in particular spending a lot more and, on and goods Europe. and services. Yes, the US and Europe. So, um, so and as I indicated in that previous uh, set of charts on Europe, we can see you know export demand starting to wane globally, and there are other indicators uh, for that. You know, other North North Asian Asians in particular. Korean exports, which which are quite uh, dynamically tracked and and announced, are, are also you know fading really fast. Same in Japan, J Japanese PMIs are showing exports fading really fast. So basically, the global economy is slowing, and so China China as well. This is where we come back to the same shape as Europe. So weak domestically and about to be hit with declining exports. So external shock going to pile pile in on indigent endogenous weakness and so then we've got that in both china and europe uh simultaneously uh, so you know the potential to get uh feedback loops into slowing growth is is there which so that's covered f five of our uh our horsemen um and and we'll just flip over to the next page and and uh, come to our sixth and this is the the granddaddy of all horsemen and the driver of, you know, kind of the global cycle. And that is, you know, the U.S. economy 
has been absolutely booming, of course. But uh, you know, the it, like I suppose what you would call overstimulus. I don't really blame anyone for it because you know we're fighting COVID. Uh, has resulted, you know, in something some of a something of an outburst of inflation in the U.S. starting on the supply side, where we had constraints and stuff. Uh, but then now the U.S. labor market is very tight, and so we're starting to see some pretty good wage gains. Uh, and so, you know, the U.S. is looking at a possible wage push inflation cycle, which is you know what really scares central banks. And the end result of that is that we have a uh, you know a a Federal Reserve that has pivoted the most hawkish I think I've ever seen in the rhetorical terms. Uh, certainly more more hawkish. Uh, in its oratory than I ever saw from Alan Greenspan. I mean, there, there are some really strong words coming out of the Fed at the moment. Uh, and so market pricing for, for uh, forthcoming hikes this year is very aggressive. Everybody's starting to price 50 basis points hikes, multiple versions of it, uh, not just 25. Uh, nine rate hikes ahead for this year and, and a uh, possibly some more next year, although that has started to roll over. But the bottom line is you've got a very hawkish Fed draining liquidity, uh, uh, which is an overlay to what the last two major economies we just talked about that makes it more difficult for them. Uh, but the Fed's determined it set itself to crush demand to fit supply so that it kills inflation. That is not a very wise thing to do for a central bank if it's based on supply constraints, but they're going to do it anyway. Uh, and so, you know, we're already starting to see some stress coming out of this, certainly in the wider global economy that's dependent on the US dollar because it's been rising uh, in emerging market spreads and stuff like that. But we're also start like US mortgage rates have gone through the roof. Uh, they're of course, a lot of people will know they're fixed rates. They're not floating. So it's not, doesn't hit, uh, you know, more current mortgagees. But what it does do is, is uh, land very hard on, on new demand for mortgages. Uh, and, you know, right now I've got a chart here on the right showing um, that uh, housing affordability with these recent something like, uh, what? Two, two percentish. Uh, yeah, well, but the the rate rise effectively in the mortgage market in the US is nearly 2% over the last six months, yes. Uh, and it's just absolutely hammered housing affordability. Yeah. So, and so, uh, and so, and to put that in context, you've gone from being able to you know, get a 30-year mortgage at whatever, 2.5% and to 4.5%. Um, yeah, to 4 yeah. So, in, in like three to six months. Yeah. So, so because the, the these fixed mortgage rates are... are attached to the 30-year bond, they've actually priced nearly all of the tightening in advance because the bond yields are reflecting what they think is coming. Uh, and so, you know, US, US housing market is something that's very, very much worth watching because uh, it's uh, it's going to slow pretty, pretty snappily, I think. And, of course, with that, you get all kinds of household goods uh, kind of demand diminishing. Uh, and then there is, of course... You know the the regular normalisation that we've been expecting all along and is happening, and that is where we're shifting from. Uh, you know the elevated goods demand based on stimulus during COVID when people couldn't go out to more 
normal patterns of consumption where they, they can go out and travel and eat and, and get a massage, etc., and so spend more money on services. And so, you you know, you've got a potential uh, demand crunch coming out of the U.S. It, you know, you may, don't even need to call it a crunch. It could just be a normalisation where we get back to, you know, uh, previous patterns and, uh, you know, it will flow out into the global economy and, and goods demand, in, you know, for Chinese and European goods will get hurt quite quickly and, and quite a bit because uh, that's what, in particular, what China has been trading on for the last two years is that uh, irregular pattern of consumption in US households. Uh, so, so you got all of these things kind of converging. Uh, there's one thing I didn't put in here, but I might as well add, which was that um, the US has basically entirely rebuilt all of its inventory stocks on, in goods as well, in most segments, not all, but most. Uh, and so if there is a demand hiccup here, and that, then, you know, I expect inventories to actually stay higher than historically because we've got, you know, it's one way of managing kind of supply strain uh, supply chain stress and risk, but there is definitely a possibility that uh, they've overbought, and you know there's been double buying and double stocking and things that are that could potentially unwind if we get this demand hiccup as rates go up. Uh, and so on top of that, of course, you know, we'll, and I'll come back to this possibility. We've already seen more volatility in in more financial assets that can also hit demand or a possible credit event. You know, which is usually what happens when, uh, you know, the Fed tightens, especially this quickly, this steeply. Something goes wrong. Something, someone bets wrong, and something snaps in financial markets. And so there's that risk as well. Um, but you know, that may not even be necessary for this for the global economy to really get damaged here. So all of that uh, kind of detail of the three major economies in the world all kind of confronting these um, intensifying headwinds and in most cases, actual shocks, uh, actually has a really neat historical analogy with the Spanish flu, which we've all been watching, of course, during COVID uh, as, you know, the model for, for how to handle things, you know, with flattening the curve and, and uh, various other kind of experiences uh, for public policy during pandemics. Um, and so... You know, it's really interesting to observe that following World War One and the outbreak of the Spanish flu, you know, we, we likewise to now, we had lots of stimulus uh, and lots of supply chain disruption. Like it was, it was a period coming out of the kind of late 19th century when the world got heavily globalised, especially under the kind of the, the imperial structures of the day and then the British Empire in particular. Um, this was, this was pre-World War One. So yes, yeah, so the right. idea was that it was, um, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of these arguments that you know there could never be a war because uh, because of how much globalization had happened and how intertwined everyone's supply chains were. Yes, was part of the reason why why the World War One couldn't couldn't happen. Yes, and it did, of course, uh, and and so this, you know, there, there was a circumstance of very similar where supply chains got heavily disrupted by both war and a pandemic. Um, inflation surged. Uh, and then the Fed hiked really dramatically into it to kill the uh, the inflation, uh, and within a year it had a depression, <laughs> basically. So, 
uh, there's a second chart here which just shows the the severity of the hikes during the kind of 19, um, 1890 period and by 2021 there was staggering deflation in the US economy of up to sort of 16 20 percent like it was mm. it was a real hammering now some of those conditions are different obviously the end of the war released some more labor back into the US economy uh, so some of the the deflation came from from um, different kind of sources, but it was it was a hell of a bust, and it was largely monetarily driven. So it's a pretty decent analogy um, for where we are today, quite frankly. Uh, so uh, that's a way of, I guess, of parsing all of these various details um, into into a historical analogy that makes makes uh, a fair amount of sense. Uh, so flipping over to uh, implications for markets. What does it mean for assets? Well, we're already seeing uh, the, uh, the sort of key recession indicator of that, that um, everybody watches, at least markets watch, bond markets, especially in an inverted yield curve, uh, which has been coming for months now. Uh, what that means is basically short-term rates are now uh, higher than long-term rates. And... Uh, so it's it's telling you that there are basically rates cuts coming, you know, down the track somewhere, which is obviously a reflection that your growth is going to fall, and it's quite a reliable indicator of recession. Uh, there are various ways of reading it and various measures of it. The key one is two-year versus ten-year bond, uh, and that inverted this week in the U.S. and it looks like I, I think it'll probably invert a lot more. Um, so. You know, that's the first thing that's got people talking. There's lots of people saying, well, it's not really a signal anymore because central banks, uh, you know, have been messing around with bond values so much, and I just don't buy that at all. Um, I think markets adapt to whatever the prevailing conditions are, and and so it looks quite informational still to me. Uh, and I always hear these excuses at this time of the cycle as well. There's always an excuse to keep bidding for equities. Uh, so I'd ignore that. I think it's a legit signal. Um, so, uh, you know, where stocks kind of were repricing successfully through, you know, the last six weeks or so, I guess, uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, the, the um, adjustment really got moving. Uh, but of course, that's all reversed now, which which is pretty typical for when wars break out, markets kind of sell off and then and rebuy. But you know that that rebound is, is some are arguing is now you know a new reflation, and there's just um, I just don't buy that at all, given you know everything in this presentation and in particular the Fed tightening directly into it. Um, and inflation is very very high still. Don't forget, I mean. We still maintain that a lot of it is going to deflate. Um, that the, some of the a lot of the supply side stuff, uh, they were all easing a lot before the Ukraine war, and they they will continue to ease, especially if the economy slows. They could ease really fast, and in fact, we'll see slack. Uh, but while inflation is high, the Fed put, which is you know, the level at which the Fed is forced to to stop raising interest rates because the stock market is crashing um, is is lower than it has been because 
Inflation is higher, which means stocks will have to fall further to knock the Fed off course. Uh, and to be honest, I think the Fed needs a commodities bust to, uh, you know, added to that to, to really, uh, if it wants to really kind of put inflation to bed. Uh, you know, we've had, you know, what was an extraordinary kind of narrative, um, I think, which was on the verge of breaking down and going bust for a commodity super cycle when Russia was invaded, and that has given it new life. Uh, and legitimately, in some some senses, you know, it really has kicked the can down the road for that. Uh, but that makes just means that the Fed is now uh, confronted with a more volatile cycle where uh, the inflation's a little more embedded. It's got to go a bit higher and a bit faster uh, to kill it off. And so we get more boom-bust kind of shape of cycle. Uh, I expect, therefore, for, you know, the, the uh, US dollar bull market to continue, I think it's got another leg higher. Um, just uh, you know, as safe haven, it's selling off at the moment, sort of on the post-war unwind, which is fine. But I think you know, as the world kind of shunts into this lower growth uh, thing, and don't forget that a global recession is anything around two percent is generally thought of. It doesn't have to contract, so that's kind of what I'm talking about. I don't know exactly how weak it would be, but that's weak enough uh, for for it to hit uh, earnings, you know, like lower earnings. And we have this very highly valued stock market and those two things don't go together. Uh, so I'd also expect the Australian dollar to fall, uh, have one more leg lower at some point as this thing plays out as, you know, kind of, I guess, risk off and, and stocks kind of, you know, finally reprice a, a you know, post-COVID rescue bust. And there you have it. Right. We've got a fair few questions there, Sam. Yeah, we've got a we've got a couple of questions coming through. Quite a few questions about deglobalization and then also uh, about inflation and interest rates. Uh, so we've got one question here um, asking about uh, whether central banks are the cause of this inflation um, for keeping interest rates too low since the GFC. And not really taking into account uh, this deglobalization that's that's looking like it's happening. Uh, in a sense, they are. Yes. Um, I mean, I think excessive liquidity, you know, creates deflation eventually, not inflation. Um, you know, because it just protects the supply side too much. You get a lot of, you know, you never get a clean out on any cycle in terms of, you know, kind of that at uh, Austrian style economics, which is, you know, very good, I think, at reading the dynamics of a business cycle. Uh, and so you end up with too much supply and you end up with too much deflation and 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 so, you know, kind of interest rates stay low forever. Um, and, and, then, then, yes. and having said that, though, you know, they're working within the tools provided to them by uh, by governments who are generally not, not – who are generally happy for um, – uh, more inequality to grow, for inequality to grow, and that's part of what David's talking about in terms of yep. saying that you know, it's this it's this it's this cycle where if interest rates are low, then as this, if you're a business, you get to invest quite cheaply, um, which then means gives you the excess capacity and then you know keeps that deflation low. Um, but the problem is we've got these consumers out there who can only consume if they if they can borrow more debt, and then you know, Australia is a great great poster child for that. And so you need to keep lowering interest rates because every time you put interest rates up, 
um, all of a sudden consumers can't buy the stuff anymore because they're, they're too busy paying their, their, their huge debts down uh, or paying, sorry, not even paying them down, paying the interest on their huge debts. And so therefore, um, you know, they need to lower rates in order to, to, to keep the whole thing from imploding. And so um, you can blame central banks certainly for keeping interest rates too low, but but it's, you've also got to acknowledge that you know they were trying to keep demand. What they were really trying to do was keep demand ticking over, and um, uh, there was no fiscal support for any of that demand, and no uh, there was no commitment to, to sort of trying to help inequality. And in fact, um, you'd, you'd argue that the opposite was happening. Yeah. And so um, and so yeah, that's where they were, they were sort of they were sort of trapped. And that's I mean it's a, it, it is an, it's nice to to have independent monetary policy but but it's worth uh remembering that you know we've really only had independent monetary policy for um what 20 30 years now and it's um uh the the, the issue has been that it's got to the stage where uh governments have you know, when governments used to have to run both it was their job to get the the economy moving whereas now um they're sort of offloaded half of that to um to all the central banks and, and said oh it's not really our fault now it's all independent and so that sort of is, is taken away there their um, uh, their responsibility to, to help keep these um, this this stuff all moving in the right direction. Awesome, uh, thanks for that, guys. We've we've got a few more uh, questions here. Uh, one of them, or uh, actually a couple of questions. Uh, what do you think's caused the bounce back in the iron ore price recently? Uh, I really don't know. I, I would put it down to. I mean, uh, fog is what I put it down to. I mean, obviously, the Ukraine war played a key role uh, insofar as, like, it knocked out you know, about 40 million tonnes of iron ore and, about, and roughly the same in steel. Uh, but the, the we don't know exactly how much of that is actually knocked out and there was a fair amount of trade between Ukraine and Russia as well. Uh, so there's clearly some disruption in the ferrous markets, and that's played a role. Um, but there's been some real odd behaviour in in the iron ore market as well. Like the last week, super heavy buying in futures, and yet spot price has done nothing. Uh, and, and I've never seen that before. Um, it, it, if you read it at face value, it shows a, a very very well supplied spot market with some speculation in futures uh you know the headwind coming out of china is is very big for iron ore uh, especially the property bust uh, the infrastructure stuff has sort of started to come through a bit uh, but um you know some of the my steel indices indexes and stuff are down 20 percent uh in terms of steel demand year on year i mean it's just overwhelms anything else that there is then you've got the impact of the coal price in china as well as and what that's doing to power prices and uh and still recycling uh, which simply hasn't come back as as it should have after covid and so that's protecting iron ore to some extent uh and so all these things that are very, very difficult to read, and a, it's a very, very murky market right now. And of course, then there's the overlay of the complete uh, global commodity panic, uh, which is just buy any kind of dirt that there is, or has been the case. It's easing now, um, and the power uh, and, and, and the investment push from from Wall Street. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Um, 
Wall Street jeering on every commodity on earth. So, yeah. Uh, and, but, and, and what I say, let me I'll, I'll flesh that out just a tiny bit more. Is that Wall Street's basically saying to save you from um, inflation, which is largely driven by commodities. Um, you know, you need you need commodities in your in your in your um in your portfolio. So there's a there's a little bit of a yeah. circular argument in there, but it but it works while that while that keeps rising. The problem is um, if that's you know if that's the only thing pushing it, then when it does go into reverse, um, you know, all the stuff that pushed it up. Is, is, is the same type of stuff that pushes it down. Yes. So my answer is, uh, I don't know at this point. Um, it's it's a, an extremely difficult market to read right now. Um, you know, I, I find it very difficult to believe that, uh, like, then there's COVID in China, right? Okay, so there's lots of transport disruption right now. China and Tang Shan is basically going to shut down or has shut down, which is like 13% of Chinese steel output, and that's sent the prices up. You know, like I can understand why it would raise the steel price, but but why it would raise iron ore is anyone's guess, you know, because it's less iron ore. But then there are supply constraints right now on Omicron in, in China, like in, in things like getting the iron ore from the ports to the mills. But again, that shouldn't raise the price, but it has. So there's just a lot, a lot of cross currents in the market right now that it's very difficult to read. I would say fundamentally, as things kind of settle down, uh, the fundamental driver is still Chinese property. It's going to get a, some help from infrastructure, but that headwind is still huge to demand. Uh, and there's plenty of supply. So it still looks very overvalued on a fundamental basis, but when it falls, it's difficult to say because it's just uh, so opaque right now. So yeah, there you go. And I think uh, feeding a little bit into that whole um, question is uh, sort of similar with oil. I guess oil is probably a little bit easier when you when you look at um, sanctions and and things like that on on, on Russia. Is you can sort of see where okay, oil um, hasn't been. Or it's actually been specifically carved out of a lot of the sanctions, um, and it'll probably end up eventually in places that are happy to, to take it, places like India or, or or China. And then as you go through, you know, various products, um, wheat, you know, India and uh, sorry, Ukraine and, and and Russia are both big exporters of wheat, and so you know, can those same countries sort of also take um, a lot of that? And you sort of go, yeah, okay, that's you, you see a potential for that, you know, at, at some point. Um, gas is a lot harder. Um, in terms of gases, it's just uh, it's difficult. They don't. Russia doesn't have the facilities to get the get the gas to India or get the gas to um, uh, to, to China in, in sufficient volumes to, to take a um, you know, to, to sort of rebalance that market. Uh, and then you start looking at say iron ore, and um, as Dave says, it's 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 the part where you know uh, both Russia and um, and the Ukraine produce some iron ore, and they both produce some steel, but the question is where where's that steel going to end up, and if and if there's just forty million disappears of steel and forty million disappears of of, of iron ore, then um, uh, you know that iron ore needs to get made up elsewhere, and the steel maybe the steel needs to be produced now in China and sent to the Europe or produced in other places in Europe. Um, you know, so there's a you know, there's a lot of those um, I guess frictions that 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 we're looking at in terms of trying to work out where where these are. Yep. Back to you, Sam. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for that, guys. 
Uh, so now we have our viewer question of the week. This is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. Uh, the question for this week is, should you buy the dip or sell the rally? Uh, so feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of the other viewers over the coming days. Uh, and we've just got one final viewer question that, uh, that's come through here. So with, with all these um, different sort of risk factors, uh, what, what do you think the probability is that we actually will experience a recession? Uh, well, I think it, it's my base case that we're going to see something akin to a global recession. Um, I don't, I, you know, would we have an Australian recession as a result? Probably not. But, you know, that, that will depend on any number of factors, especially the timing of this. If it does come in uh, more quickly than usual, which is also my base case because everything in this cycle has been so accelerated uh, and I'm seeing so, many, so much kind of early warning stress already anyway. Like, for instance, normally an inverted yield curve might indicate a recession one to three years out. I think it's more like six months this time. Uh, so, you know, I do think there's, you know, a fairly deflationary bust coming in the global economy. The question is, w would the RBA get rate hikes off before that happens? Look, probably it looks like it will now. Uh, but I think it will be touch and go, but that will play a role in whether Australia joins the world. Um and then we'll have the same asset price busts as the world does, um, which will also impact things. Uh, you know, our housing markets are already falling. Equities would fall here as well, of course. Uh, and so you'd have the same sort of blow to consumer confidence, whether that would be enough to actually cause an Australian recession. Uh, assuming we had a commodities bust as well, then that plays a role. Um, I would say probably not because there's a fair bit of momentum in the local economy and stuff. But, you know, in terms of asset prices and things, that's that's going to be pretty immaterial, I think. Um, so base case, global recession, which is, you know, anything around 2% growth. Australia takes a pretty serious knock, especially on asset prices, probably doesn't get in a recession unless it's out a little further so that happens in 2023 and the RBA manages to hike rates like four times. And then suddenly housing is falling fast in 2023. So, which it would be, I, I suggest. Excellent. Okay, Damo, have you, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of I guess, questions about the, the fun, some of the fun questions. I guess one in particular um, uh, from Jude, yeah, talking about uh, you know the the growth fund um, sort of having a, a tough run at uh, for for the last couple of weeks, and you know the idea about the uh, the Aussie dollar ETF and, and Aussie bonds um, in play, and look, I think for both those assets, you know, within within every portfolio, there's there's um, you you're you ones there for offense and your defense, and and trying to you know, balance that scenario in terms of it, and so you know while the equities are sort of providing one side. Um, uh, you know, those have obviously haven't helped on on the way up. But we do think they're sort of pregnant with with a bit of performance, and and there's there's um, potential for us certainly on the uh, on the bond side to 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 possibly even take a little bit more exposure given given how far they've uh, risen, and particularly in the Aussie bond um, side in terms of relative to to the global market. You know, David spoke about um, 
you know, how the, the US market's um, signaling recession, the Aussie market um, bond yield curves are signaling the opposite. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're basically as steep as they've been in, in, a, in a long time. And so from that perspective, we do think there's some mispricing. A, a lot of it comes down to your assumption about what the things we've been talking about today. You know, are, are these headwinds in Europe, the headwinds in China and the headwinds in, in the US enough to slow growth? And, and in our mind, um, you know, that's uh, growth in commodities in particular. And in our mind, that's a, um, that's a bit of a given is yes, we do think those, you know, all those factors will come to play and will actually slow the growth in the commodities market. And that's where um, you'll see the effect come back on Australia. Now, if that doesn't happen, then um, uh, yeah, then then those those plays obviously won't work as well. Uh, the flip side is you'll you know will perform a little bit better on the equity side, and um, uh, but but yeah, well certainly in, in that's you know if we're, if we're picking scenarios where we think we'll outperform, um, is is it scenarios where uh, the, the factors we spoke about today come home to roost and and markets start to in, incorporate that into into the valuations and we saw so as Dave spoke about we saw that as as um, uh, as the, the effects of the war were, were started to be, be factored in um, we think there'll be another sort of shooter drop as as growth starts to slow and um, we're certainly seeing a lot of leading indicators um, the question is when it happens you know could it could it take six months or a year? Um, in a normal market, absolutely, I'd say you know we're probably talking six months to, to eighteen months to, to start to start see it start coming through. Given how fast everything's moved, been moving um, throughout the last two years and how you know we've had this cycle on 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 crack as we, as we we like to say, um, is that you know it, the, could it could it take you know six weeks rather than six months? And, and first, you know the answer is yes, absolutely. If you know the the right um, sort of phase of of, of watching. Um, you know, trying to slow, um, you know, some slowing in the US, which is you sort of see the tinge of, and and maybe we, we see as well. You know, there is potential, and I don't want to sort of wouldn't be betting the house on it right now, but you know, there's potential that some of these, um, some of the things we're seeing in China, uh, in terms of shutdowns and lockdowns, actually actually frees up the um, uh, the transport a bit more, and actually lets you know because basically you're not China's not shoving as much in in one end of the the, the transport pipe. And that sort of helps to free up some of the um, some of the blockages, and um, potentially gets that moving again. So yeah, so I guess there's there's a number of the risks that, that we think are, are um, look imminent, and and so it's worth having these uh, these hedges in place to uh, in case that sort of all comes comes through. Excellent. Oh, well, thanks for that, guys. That almost wraps us up. Uh, but today, I just want to take a moment to showcase our new direct indexing products. Uh, they're the first of their kind in Australia, but they are available in other parts of the world. Uh, so they're similar to an ETF, as in it's a buy and hold passive strategy that tracks an index. But the main advantages, it allows, it allows you to cust customize your holdings in that index. And what I mean by that is you can make any changes to the index as you see fit. Uh, whereas a traditional ETF is, is a one size fits all that you can't change. Uh, and with direct indexing, you own all the stocks directly and you can uh, customize the index by utilizing any of our ethical and sector screens. Uh, so you can exclude Australian banks, for example, or exclude coal stocks or add technology stocks. Uh, you really have the ability to customize your portfolio to align with your ethical values and beliefs. And we have around 50 different uh, screens to choose from. So please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com forward slash direct indexing and have a look at that there. 
Uh, so that wraps us up. So, Damien, just want to thank you for sharing your knowledge as always. Thanks a lot, Sam. And Dave, great insights, and uh, thanks for coming on the show again. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on the show, especially in regards to um, suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any ideas, please drop it in the YouTube comments below or send us an email at contact at newcoursewealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at newcoursewealth.com and book a call with me or one of the team. And finally, don't forget to like the video now. And if you know anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, would really appreciate it if you please share it with them. Also, if you'd like to see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. And to stay up to date with news from us, you can also follow us on uh, all major social media. So for myself, Damien, Dave, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.